Barry Forshaw. I'm the editor of Crime Time, and I'm the author of such books as British Crime Film, British Gothic Cinema, and Sex and Film. And this is one of our Crime Time FM Blu-ray specials, which is a, a monthly look at new material, mostly crime-related, but not necessarily in the Blu-ray and DVD idiom. And today, as is our wound, we have a very special guest who I'll be introducing in just a couple of minutes, somebody I've worked with on various Blu-rays. Um, the current batch is, is very lively. There is finally a Blu-ray set of the complete line of duty, all the series, and whatever you think about the way that Jed Mercurio rounded off his series, it's still one of the most kinetic, exciting pieces of television, beautifully acted, beautifully written, and that's available from Acorn Media International. It also looks particularly good. Arrow, of course, are still hitting us with a lot of very uh, attractive titles, such as Bird with a Crystal Plumage, which my special guest and myself have both worked on. This is a 4K restoration from the original negative of Dario Gento's, probably his initial calling card film, and it looks better than it's ever looked before. It's actually a, it is actually a crime movie if one looks at it. Um, such companies as 88 films I've been looking at lately, a uh, series of Jally, such as Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Watch Me When I Kill. Uh, it's a company which has long dedicated itself to doing very good transfers of, of classic Italian horror and crime films, and lately have been including all the time the Italian track, which is almost invariably better. From Second Sight, we have uh, The Craze, Peter Medak's book, and everyone was quite surprised that Spandau Ballet turned out to be pretty capable actors. Uh, this is a new Blu-ray edition of it. Uh, this is really crime, but I need to mention it because our special guest is also involved with it. It's The Hands of Orlac, the Robert Wiener film, uh, the classic uh, from Eureka. This looks better than it's ever looked before. And uh, we have, I mentioned last month, Years of Lead, also from Arrow, which is five classic Italian crime thrillers. Uh, there is an unusual film, which needs to be looked at again from Indicator, uh, a private eye movie called The Big Fix, and it's interesting, film because the career choices for Richard Dreyfus after uh, Close Encounters and Jaws were mixed, shall we say. But this is an interesting film that needs to be looked at again, as does a kind of very strange film directed by Mike Nichols, not typical at all, called The Day of the Dolphin, which is sort of half thriller, half science fiction, with George C. Scott as exemplary as ever. From Eureka, we have a variety of... Uh, Asian uh, crime, crime films, Wild Search, uh, Time and Tide, and PTU, all of them very much worthy of attention. But I think it's time, having mentioned all of those films, to move on to our special guest. Kim Newman is a movie Hi. Hello, Kim. He's an author, he's a broadcaster, he's a contributing editor to Sight and Sound and Empire Magazines, and his books about film, which are just to my left here, all neatly arrayed, include Nightmare Movies, Kim Newman's Video Dungeon. His fiction includes the Anno Dracula series, which everybody likes. Everybody who likes fantasy and horror likes that series. And uh, Professor Moriarty, The Hand of the Durbervilles, and an English ghost story. He's the lead writer on BBC Four's Mark Commode's Secrets of Cinema. Now, his latest novel, which we'll talk about after talking about Blu-rays and DVDs, is something I've covered for the Financial Times, Something More Than Night, so, Kim, before I ask you any questions, I'm going to re write what, read what I said about something more than night. 
Did you know that the hard-boiled American crime writer Raymond Chandler and the British Frankenstein actor Boris Karloff were both ex-public school boys at Dulwich? This bizarre but authentic fact is the basis for Kim Newman's kinetically entertaining something more than night. So it's a very strange and wonderful uh, concept. How did it come to you, Kim? It came to me when Boris Karloff and Raymond Chandler had their centenaries within a couple of months of each other. So that means I've been thinking about this book since like the late 1980s. Um, I'll correct you slightly. Um, they both lived in Dulwich. Um, Karloff went to Uppingham and right. Chandler was at Dulwich College. So they were both public school boys. They didn't go to the same school. They almost certainly played in the same cricket fixtures. Right. Um, when, yeah, because they were as they were both on the cricket teams. So, you know, they, they, they might well, I mean, in my version, uh, they uh, played cricket as, as kids. They might have, they might not, doesn't matter. It's not what my, my story is about. And my story takes place in Hollywood anyway. Um, well, yeah. I, I want you to hold that thought, Kim, because that's how we're going to end this particular interview. But let's just briefly talk about some of the things you and I have worked on together uh, on, yeah. in terms of Blu-rays. So we both worked on two interesting, uh, very different Sherlock Holmes movies, have we not? Oh, absolutely. We've done uh, Murder by Decree uh, for Studio Canal, um, a UK release, and Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace for Severin uh, in a an American box set of the uh, the European horror films of uh, Christopher Lee in the 60s. It's not all um, Lee's European films, but it's a, a fair old sampling of them. And those two films... Well, they couldn't have been more different, could they? I mean, uh, most people, Murder by Decree is among their favourite Sherlock yes. Holmes films. And although Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace is interesting for a variety of reasons, it's not quite in the same class, is it? No, it, and I suspect, I mean, it, it's got all kinds of reasons for um, problem uh, for it to be problematic. It, it, there, it's a rather messy international co-production. Uh, Lee's voice is dubbed, as indeed is, is almost everybody in it. Um, there are all kinds of other behind-the-scenes issues with it. But I think one of the main reasons it's, it's not so well known is it's not particularly been seen. Um, it's not been an easy film to see. In fact, this release will at least make it look good. Yeah, um, this yes. is the best it's looked in a while. And I think both of us found when we looked at it again, there were good things about it. Yes. But people had tended to brush away because they were on on the whole disappointed with the film. But, hey, it's not that Will Ferrell movie. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> in terms of Sherlock Holmes, there's a lot worse out there. Yes, it, it is not the Nadia. I found myself thinking when we were doing our commentary that it was rather like um, the Amicus Anthology, and I'm talking about the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee now. Those Amicus Anthologies knowingly thought that if a particular segment was a bit of a dud, there was something else to come along almost immediately. And isn't well, that true of that Christopher Lee box, do you think? Well, I suppose so. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by all the films in there, even the ones that uh, are a bit of a mess. Um, I think it's a fascinating period in European uh, filmmaking. And they are, they tend to be actual European films in that they're mostly co-productions between you know, Italy and Spain and Germany. There's even a bit of Britain in there. Um, so they're all these hyphenate movies. I know that in the early 60s, Christopher Lee moved to Switzerland because from there he could drive 
to every place that he might be asked to make a movie. Um, but he also said that Switzerland was the most boring place on earth. Uh, <laughs> and he moved back to Britain, even though that meant paying more income tax, just because he just he got so fed up with the place. Um, <laughs> you drew my attention, Kim, and I'm grateful. Uh, and I've been in touch with Network recently to work uh, in connection with their new Maygray set. Uh, so I'm doing a variety of things for that uh, and introducing an episode. Um, you, uh, being a very young man, of course, probably do not remember Rupert Davis's Maygray series. No, I, I realized I, I saw one or maybe two episodes, but that would have been long after the show was off the air. I think in the 1970s, the BBC did one of those, um, <laughs> yeah, filling a slot shows where they repeated six episodes of detective series you know of the yes. random series they'd made of this and i think i and i know i watched the maygray then um, but the cultural legacy of it was huge i mean we still think of french music is the maygray theme isn't it is that yes. uh, and um, i know that simonon said that rupert davies was his favorite maygray thing is i suspect simonon told everybody who played <laughs> maygray that he was their favorite but um but yes, no, it's, I, it's, it's a set I'm looking forward to um, uh, getting into, actually, because I say it was it's strange that something could be such a huge mainstream hit and then completely disappear. It's as if Line of Duty went back in a vault for another 55 years before anybody saw it again. Yes. An interesting point you made about the fact that Simonon possibly said to everyone from Jean Gabin onwards, that they were his favorite maker because I know that um, Henning Mankel, whoever he was talking to, would would give a different favorite Kurt Volander. Oh he right, yeah. He he would cut his cloth to that. So there are other. Interesting... Then again, I bet Simonon would have hated Rowan Atkinson. Yes, indeed. I think we're all agreed that Rowan Atkinson, by trying so hard to avoid being comedic, made Maigret yeah. a very doer figure. Yeah, I think he's uh, he is the worst Maygray. He is the Will Ferrell of Maygray. <laughs> Will Ferrell, I see, is becoming a yardstick for the Nadia. <laughs> I don't even think Will Ferrell was the worst screen Sherlock Holmes. I suspect that was Peter Cook. I think we would agree that it <laughs> probably was Peter Cook. <laughs> and actually, and, and, and the annoying thing is Peter Cook could have played Sherlock Holmes. Of course. Um, he had the look. And it, strangely, I think if Peter Cook had been cast in Billy Wilder's Sherlock Holmes film and had been told to play it straight, he would have had a whole different career. Because Cook is one of those performers who was so brilliant that he got bored easily. I think if he had been prevailed on to act, yes, um, he, he would genuinely have been one of Britain's great actors. He's really good in... Uh, Jonathan Miller's Alice in Wonderland, um, and I and I think if he had, if he were given a couple more knocks around the edges, he would have been a great Sherlock Holmes and a great British actor. As it was, we've got uh, Paul Morris's Hound of the Baskervilles, which I think is the worst uh, Sherlock Holmes comedy. I mean, it's worse than Holmes and Watson. <laughs> now, tell me, why is it you're someone who's written very authoritatively? I mean, you and I have done lots on Sherlock Holmes together. Uh, why do you think that Holmes as a character? is prone to so many really awful adaptations and so many dull adaptations alongside some brilliant ones? Um, I think he's difficult to dramatise now. I think that uh, there have been, 
there's been a tendency, probably ever since Billy Wilder, and I love Billy Wilder's film, to look at Sherlock Holmes and think there's something wrong with him. Um, and so all subsequent Sherlock Holmeses have become basket cases or sort of inept yes. or socially awkward or sociopathic. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, maybe the culture is no longer comfortable with the notion of, um, of male friendship. Because all the, the Holmes and Watson teams since 1970 have been horribly dysfunctional. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even Jeremy Brett ended up playing Sherlock Holmes as a basket case. Um, and I think that, that that's because Sherlock Holmes is a fascinating figure. But, but what Conan Doyle was interested in was the stories. And I think that's what many Holmes um, adaptations miss, is the stories. Conan Doyle wrote really good mysteries. Yes. <laughs> Tell me, uh, you and I worked together for 88 films on The Violent Professionals. Did that awaken in you a desire to see more Poliziotesque? Because there's quite a few we haven't seen yet. There are, but, I, but while researching that, and I, and, um, I, I, did, I did one other uh, Poliziotesque for 88 as well. I watched a whole bunch, you know, it's like, and I have to say, they do all kind of blur together. They're all. Thomas Millian in a different hat being evil, yeah, <laughs> and some obsessive police inspector trying to bring him in. Um, I, I did watch about half a dozen of those and then uh, some random others. But, yeah, it is a, a genre that maybe is only starting to get um, to creep through into release or into wider release outside Italy. Yeah, Whereas so it's, like we've, it's amazing. We've seen pretty much every giallo. Yes. And certainly every Italian Gothic horror film. But all these cop movies, I've got to say, next on the list of Italian subgenres is um, is fart-based comedy. And I don't think <laughs> any of us are going to be uh, yeah, watching the entire Franco and Ciccio collection. <laughs> yes, in fact, uh, Italian comedy is um, pretty basic. It's interesting also <laughs> looking at those Poliziotesca that almost invariably feature an American actor of a certain age who's in the graveyard of his career or the dying embers of his career, Joseph Cotton, yeah. Arthur Kennedy. And that's quite yeah. interesting to see those people at the end of their careers, do you think? Oh, that's an element of it. I, I, uh, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is I'm reading um, Quentin Tarantino's novel of, of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that starts, I mean, the film starts you know, with, a, with a lengthy discussion of why it makes sense for certain American actors to go to Italy and make those movies. Uh, and as a period in um, these actors' careers, some of them had little uh, sort of late flowerings. Henry Silver, for instance, got mm. a lot of really great work in Italy. And Lee Van Cleef, in particular, was a bit player in America and a star mm. in Italy. Uh, so it wasn't entirely a humiliation to... Uh, yeah, go there and play the guy behind the desk that Maurizio merely hands his badge in to. You know? <laughs> uh, what about, uh, you mentioned Tarantino. Are you looking forward to the new edition from Arrow of True Romance? Is that a film you're ready to see again? I haven't seen it in a while. I remember quite liking it. I'm not a huge Tony Scott fan, um, but I remember it's it's one of his films I liked more than others. Yes. It's interesting, though, the, the subgenre of films which one watches for their screenplays. Mm. Yeah. There could be a book in that, could there not, Kim? Uh, yes, yeah. It's a, there's a... 
there was a side to that, and it's in Natural Born Killers as well, Tarantino scripts not directed by Tarantino. And there's a sort of heartless bastardiness about them that his own films don't have. Um, I think he has a, yeah, he's able to be sort of tough and cynical and eccentric and strange, but also humane. Whereas I think other people interpreting his scripts tend not to. They tend to miss the the, the real sort of odd warmth that's in his own work. Yes. Another... um influential duo in in films where Boileau and Narcissac, who of course wrote the screenplay or wrote the stories for Vertigo and, and uh, Lady Diabolique. And there is a film from Indicator, which is Eye of the Cat, which is yet another in the subgenre of Boileau and Narcissac. Do we say rip-offs or do we say tributes? Um, it's, it, uh, uh, the best description I've uh, heard of that is, it, I think uh, uh, an American film critic called Don Willis called them, it's all a plot plots. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if La Diabolique is absolutely the first of those, but it's certainly the most influential. Isn't it? I mean, I was watching also from Indicator, Nightmare on the Hammer Box set, uh, the latest Hammer Box set you know, this week. And mm. that's an it's all a plot plot, isn't it? Yes. That, that thing... Um, where at some point you need a flashback to show you who's trying to drive who mad or who's trying to uh, frame someone for murder or prompt yes. some outcome, uh, and then it all collapses on their heads. Yeah, and it's a a, a formula. I can't believe Boileau and Nasty Jack invented it. Although both Le Diabolique and Vertigo have it. Um, I suppose they also wrote um, Eyes Without a Face, and that's not an It's All a Plot plot. No, that's true. It's interesting, though, that uh, the film's... Even oh, the- I know. Another thing you mentioned, Hands of Orlac, is yes. It's All a Plot plot. Indeed. An early, an early example of that. Yeah. The, um, the- Maurice Renard maybe yes. is the man we credit he with c- inventing that. He created the uh, genre. But uh, even yeah. the the hammers, uh, such as Taste of Fear or Scream of Fear in the States, that has a cheating moment where one of the conspirators is seen alone in a room reacting to something which they've set up. So always mm, yeah. there to keep us off base, isn't it? Yeah. I, I suppose the rationale is you think these people never quite know whether anyone's watching them, so they're even privately alone, like method actors, to staying with it. I say there's a very minor plot movie called um, Whatever Happened to Jack and Jill that shows it from the point of view of the conspirators. So you see one of those plots done in the way you see like a Mission Impossible story play out. I always wonder if you remade Le Diabolique from the point of view of the guy who has to lie in a bathtub for six hours with the makeup on pretending to be dead, waiting for the woman to come home so he can terrify her and see all the other contrivances people do yeah, it's like the, the guy who's pretending to be a corpse trying to stop giggling and all that stuff. But um, no one's ever taken that approach. <laughs> no. Well, before we get on to the, and um, we're going to end this with the discussion of your new novel, there's something coming from Arrow, which I'm looking forward to, and I'm sure you are, the Sergio Martino collection. Because surely Martino, after Argento and Barber, is the one of the holy trinity of the Jolly directors? He's up there. He's one of my favourite Italian filmmakers. I think of Argento and Bava as people who sort of transcended um, Italy. They became international filmmakers. I mean, Argento, I suppose, confined himself almost entirely to uh, 
Gialli and Horror. I mean, he made one comedy that nobody likes. And Barber made all kinds of films. He made westerns and Viking movies and Diabolik and, and whatever. But Sergio Martino, I think, is absolutely at the top of that rank of people who made films in every trend. He's a, I think he's a more, uh, yeah, as a filmmaker, I think he's better than Umberto Lenzi or Ruggiero Diodato or Enzo G. Castellari, all of whom I've got a certain amount of time for. But Martino, I think he's like at the top of, of those. Yes. Uh, and I, th I think he made some of the best uh, Gialli, some of the best uh, Polizzi Tesci. Uh, certainly, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, um, Island of the Mutations, Island <laughs> of the Fifth Men, that, those kind of weird jungle adventure action type movies. I think he made those with sort of more brio than well, you, you're, uh, you're than correct. Else. He worked in various films. One of the ones I contributed next to, Suspicious Death of a Minor, has horror elements, comedy. Mm. Poliziotesque. It's yeah. a bit of a mess, but it's an entertaining mess. Yeah. yeah. But looking forward to that set, there's Case of the Scorpion's Tale, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, one of those wonderfully tongue-twisting, poetic Italian titles. Yeah. Uh, but finally, we, we need to get back to your something more than nice. Now tell me, Absolutely. Kim, is it, is it aimed at people like me who will get the film references, or could a reader pick it up and have no knowledge of Boris Karloff's career and it doesn't matter. Well, I hope that people who, um, who know nothing about uh, Karloff or Chandler can pick it up and, and read it. Um, I always try to do something that is accessible. Uh, for me, I was interested by these two people, but then at some point, it's not a biography, it is a work of fiction. Um, I, I think, did um, do people who read uh, George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman books actually read? Tom Brown school days first. Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, there are all kinds of things where you 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 uh, pick up. I mean, uh, do you have to know all the history to enjoy Wolf Hall? Yeah, yes. Uh, yes. I, I, it, it does. It, it, it has been something of a, a, a concern for me that when I first thought of the book and had the idea of it, uh, Carl and Chandler were big enough figures that they still were. Uh, people that everybody knew. I do worry that uh, some decades later, now I've brought it out, maybe uh, they've fallen a bit off the radar, uh, although they're still very much at the, the top of their game, isn't it? Uh, every Halloween, uh, do you ever have you ever seen a kid dressed as the Frankenstein monster wearing a Robert De Niro mask? <laughs> yeah. Um, or uh, even doing the, the Boris Karloff or Bobby Boris Pickett voice yeah yes. it's like there's still that there. and certainly um raymond chandler is still your go-to private eye writer it's like to the extent that almost everybody including uh i don't know the cohen brothers you know uh essentially um the big lebowski is an extended homage to raymond chandler mm. um and you can see a lot of raymond chandler for instance in um the Bosch novels and uh, TV series. They, yes. they draw a lot on um, but in, what Chandler you, does with Los Angeles. You mentioned Chandler, and it's interesting that I know you're a big Chandler fan, but your own fiction references an earlier era. One feels that the Edwardian era is of influence to you, the Victorian era. So where does your heart lie? Is it in fog-bound Victorian London or smoggy Los Angeles? 
Oh, it's in fiction. Yeah, uh, it's in all these these stories. I don't have any particular. I'm not. Uh, I don't think I'm a particularly nostalgic writer. Um, I I write stories some with the historical setting. I, I mean, I have written uh, stories with the contemporary setting. I've written science fiction. Yeah, you know, say in the future. Uh, and I've written a lo lot of alternate worlds. I am certainly interested in this notion of the enclosed fictional world, the uh, the idea of uh, escapist fiction as a sort of pocket universe that that uh, you know people use to cope with the real world. But also, I'm interested in how that reflects reality. You know, it's yes. like in in the end, all the all of the books sort of you know, <laughs> wrestle with real world issues in the forms of uh, various modes of popular fiction. Nobody can accuse you, Kim, of having a lack of chutzpah because you take on, and very successfully, I have to say, take on the voice of Raymond Chandler, the, the most witty. Yeah. And, so. I cheated I a bit. I know. I, 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 in a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a uh, Raymond Chandler pastiche or a Chandler Lovecraft mashup called The Big Fish, um, which uses Philip Marlowe's voice. And Philip Marlowe's voice has been so often imitated that uh, even Raymond Chandler said he felt it was getting a bit strained, you know, the, the similes and, and the, sort of the, the deliberately hard-bitten, slightly misanthropic edge. So for this book, which is narrated uh, mostly by... Chandler. I read the nonfiction. There's a book called Raymond Chandler Speaking, which has his articles, but particularly lots of his letters. Actually, like H.P. Lovecraft, he spent most of his life, writing life writing letters to people, which yeah. he used to dictate. So they're a bit sloppier. <laughs> yeah. Um, I even put in a couple of mistakes in references in the because he did in the letters yes. uh, there's a bit where there are the bits where he gets the titles of things wrong and and actually of course all the copy editors said you got the title wrong i said no no ray got the title wrong <laughs> no, yeah, i'm just channeling his voice one um, of the, the triumphs of, of something more than night is is the creation of boris karloff and what seems to me is what you see as his appeal is not just that he's a terrific and charismatic actor and iconic but there's a contrast between the monster and the villains he played and this very civilised, rather gentle, cricket-loving English gentleman. Yeah, but he's also one of those Englishmen who isn't quite English, which I think is a very Hollywood thing. Isn't it? You know, I think I say in the, in the, the book, yeah, you, you realise that Basil Rathbone is South African and George Sanders is Russian and Karloff is Anglo-Indian. I mean, <laughs> William Pratt. Um, uh, yeah, it, one of the reasons he, he changed his name to something foreign-sounding is that in Hollywood terms, he looked foreign. Yeah. So he ended up playing a lot of, I mean, he played like American Indians um, yeah. and Russians uh, and, and all kinds of, uh, sort of mad gypsies and, and Hungarians or whatever. It's very rare you find him playing an Englishman. Um, I, the only one I can think of the, off, off the top of my head is Alan Costello, meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, he, I, even in the old dark house, he's Welsh. Yes. Although he often plays his American boss just with a straight British accent, does he not? Oh, yeah. And, and it's interesting that that was something that was possible. It's like Cary Grant never adopted an American accent, but he doesn't seem British, does he? No, no. And interesting you're saying about the the appearance of Carlisle. So if we think of the iconic British horror actors, Christopher Lee, Basil Rathbone, Carlisle, they all have the 
touch of the foreign about them. In fact, Christopher Lee couldn't yeah. get past, could he? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and Lee in particular, before he played Dracula, I suppose Dracula's a foreigner as well, but because he was tall and I think he was half Italian, he um, he ended up playing a lot of uh, Spanish captains and Nazi officers. It was the British cinema in the 1950s. You know, was, yeah, the only roles they had were Soho Pimps as well, who was sort of Maltese. Yeah, yeah. it's... Yeah, that may well be why he went to Europe. Yeah, yes. Now tell me, when you when you take a book like Something More Than That to your publisher, Titan in this case, and you give them the premise, do they now you've been around for a while and you've you've paid your dues, do they say, fantastic, Kim, yeah, we wait for that with interest, or do they say, Kim, could you move it in this direction? I I didn't have any um direction like that with this. I did take the take them. I gave them the premise and I actually gave them an outline. I ended up deviating from quite a lot. Uh, as I said, this book's been in development in my head since the late eighties. And at some point I'd written an outline and I went back and looked at it and it had its major plot thread was something that has been done too much. Uh, and so I dropped that. The, the major, my original pitch had the um, the mystery, as it were, was a kind of Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer type mystery. It was about a character who who is sort of Gene Harlow. It was about a dead movie star. And I just thought, we have had too many books and TV shows in which middle-aged de male detectives obsess over dead women. And so I took that out and I decided, no, I wanted the obsession to be about something else. Um, and I hope what I've come up with, uh, yeah, will will thrill and surprise and, and intrigue readers. Well, it does do that. Tell me, do you think, without any spoilers whatsoever, do you think that at that era there was something rotten in the state of Hollywood? Oh, yes. Yeah, there still is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also something marvellous there as well. I mean, I do... It's set... I, I'm very vague about when exactly it's set. It's sort of the late 30s um, that with just about at the beginning of the war. It's sort of, um, it's somewhere between Chandler writing The Big Sleep and it being published and sort of between, a bit before Boris Karloff's in Son of Frankenstein. That's the, the bulk of it. But, <laughs> At that time, there were all kinds of things going on in Hollywood and the world um, that were uh, unsettling. Uh, but th but then again, yeah, I, I did. It's really difficult to write a historical novel without it going through the the lens of what's going on at the moment. I mean, is it possible right now to write a villain without? hearing Donald Trump or Boris Johnson whenever you give them a monologue, you know, is it, are we, or in fact, every villain I've seen in movies in the last two years has been Elon Musk. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, he's the, and, but did Elon Musk consciously model himself on Lex Luthor? Uh, because it seems like that, doesn't it? Uh, it does indeed. Well, now, Kim, you and I will no doubt be recording lots of other Blu-ray commentaries, but in the meantime, I cannot recommend too highly something more than night published by Titan. And uh, Kim, I hope you're working on your next novel as we speak. Um, I'm thinking about it. 
<laughs> That's a start. Thank you, Kim Newman. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Crime Time FM. Barry will be back next month with a new selection of DVDs and Blu-rays. Bye for now.